great to be with you this morning and to look at what does success mean to you and what does it mean to God. And so we're going to look at some of your texts here. I hope they're not uber spiritual this morning. Um, all right, let's bring them on. What is success to you? What is success to you? <laughs> Nothing. Well, so last time we got texts like, I want to be like Rudd. I want hair like Rudd. That's why he mentioned earlier no texts about him. Um, are they coming? Success would be to have your texts up on the screen right now. Um, success would be a few empty seats for visitors. And we're going to give it up. No? Are they coming? They're coming. All right. To be in K2 band. Nice. For some of us. Yes. Success is... Being filthy rich, having a happy family life, being proud of who I am. All right. That's not uber spiritual. That was honest. <laughs> Accomplishing goals. Good. Life of worry-free lifestyle. Wouldn't that get boring? Just a little? I don't know. Just children who love God and love others. Success is doing a good job and being recognized for it financially and emotionally. Rewards for your hard work. Continue to live life sober every day, one day at a time. It's good. Good, healthy relationships, financial security, contentment. Good family. Getting into Belay West. All right, I wrote that. Okay. <laughs> Staying sober and being happy. Have a great family and be happiest as I can be. So a lot of happiness here. Family. Some financial stuff. Career things. Happiness, family, friends, and a great career. All right, good. Seems like you guys were a little more honest than the first service. All right, I think that's good. One, two more. Success is finding a place in my life where I feel I have everything I want. All right. <laughs> Happy, healthy, smart kids. Okay. All right, excellent. Thank you for doing that. So now please do turn off your cell phones. That would be success to me, an uninterrupted service. All right. So those are some of the things you guys came up with, what, what success means to you. Really, if we look at our culture, if we're honest with ourselves, our culture paints a certain picture of success and what success means and how it is measured in the society that we live in, in the, in the times and culture we live in. These are usually the, the measures of success. It's money and the, the amount of money that we have at our disposal Oftentimes it's a career and the, the advancement of that career. And sometimes it comes with authority. What level of authority have we achieved? 
Um, and then what do we accumulate, right? Status symbols are, are often a measure of success, whether that's what car you drive, what kind of house you live in, what kind of vacation you can afford, maybe even what kind of clothes you wear. For athletes, it's victories. Your success is measured by victories, by championships, by the rings you wear. Um, and then for some of us, it's, it's more basic. We saw some of those, staying sober. For some of us, keeping a job. Having a job is success. Um, saving a marriage can be success. Finishing school. Webster's uh, defines success like this. There's two, two definitions for Webster, in Webster's for success. First one is the favorable or prosperous termination of attempts or endeavors. What that means, a positive or profitable outcome of something that you have tried to accomplish. And secondly... Success is defined as the attainment of wealth, position, and honor. Right? That pretty much defines what our culture considers success, doesn't it? As I was thinking about this, I want to add one definition that we're going to go into a little bit more this morning. And that is that success is fulfilling your purpose. That success is finding and fulfilling your purpose. And one thing that became pretty clear to me as I've thought about this this week is that I think all of us want to be successful. Is there anybody here who doesn't just strict, just doesn't want to be successful? Anybody? No. See, we all want to be successful on some level. We all want to be good at something, don't we? We want to be excellent at something and, and all that we can be. And I think that goes all across the board and it seems like it's something that's just rooted deep inside of us. We want to be successful, and then in our culture, we want to be successful quickly, right? That's why we have all these get-rich-quick schemes on TV where they want to teach you how to do it with real estate and with this and, or with, with working out and getting fit. I mean, they try and tell you things now where you can be successful without doing anything in 10 minutes a day, you know? Just strap this thing on, and it's going to vibrate. And, and it, I mean, success and success quick. And apparently, we're buying into it because they're still selling that stuff. And I, again, I don't think it matters what life stage you're in, what, what area you work in, whether you're in business or whether you're in education, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or in ministry or in athletics, we want to be successful. And I think there's actually something positive about that. There's very positive motivation. We, we want to be excellent. We want to be the best that we can be. We want to make the best or the most out of our potential and what we've been given. And I think deep inside, we want to make a contribution. I think we want to make a difference. We want to know that we matter. And I think all that is good. However, I think that our drive to success can reach a tipping point where it goes from good and normal and excellent and good motivation where it tips to being negative and becoming destructive. And I think that happens because our drive to success and especially the, the desire for the rewards of success, because that's really what we want, right? We want the rewards of success. They can become so important that, that it all becomes about us, that our pursuit of success is all about self. Anybody watched The Apprentice recently? I think they just started a new season. Anybody watched The Apprentice? Okay, just two of us. I don't believe it, but all right. Uh, I, 
I've watched it once in a while, and it's, it's kind of entertaining because they are taking this drive to succeed to a whole new level, and it obviously it adds drama, but I've never seen anything like it where there is such a self-centeredness and where success at all costs is lived out so shamelessly, where there is backstabbing and lying and deceiving and slandering each other all for what? To be successful, to be first and get what you want. That happens when, when the drive for success and the results of that and the rewards become our identity. When our drive to success becomes so important that it defines us, that we define ourselves by the rewards of our success. Because when that happens... Ends start justifying the means, right? If success is all that matters, then how you get there doesn't matter anymore. And I tell you, I've been guilty of that in the past. When, when I started my soccer career, and you know how we European soccer players are, right? It's not exactly football. You know, you, you get touched and you, ah, and you fall and you're the dying swan and you roll on the ground. You, you've seen that. You've seen the Italians on soccer on TV, right? They're just, just rolling around, scream. The Germans don't usually do that. But, you know, and, and why do you do that? It's, well, barely touched, but hey, it'll get me a penalty. Hey, maybe it'll get me an advantage. Maybe he'll get a red card. And we do what the the ends justify the means, winning at all cost. On another level, I, I did that in school a lot. Now, my, my drive in school was not to be excellent. My drive in school, so my level of success in school was do as little as I can, but pass. Okay? So to do that, my, my idea of do as little as I can was do nothing and then cheat to pass tests. Yeah, that, that, that wasn't when I wasn't following Jesus. And the ends justified the means to me. Say, so, hey, as long as I pass, it, how I get there isn't so important. I can't tell you the creativity and energy uh, that went into that. It was ca- quite remarkable. <laughs> but you see, when we get to that level, and obviously this is school, it wasn't right, and soccer. When we get to that level in, in our life, when we get to that level in our careers, in our relationships, success comes at a great, great cost. It comes at the cost of relationships. It often comes at the cost of families. It comes at, at a great cost to the person themselves. It often comes at a cost to their health, physically, emotionally. But the biggest cost, I think, that we pay when success becomes all we strive for is the cost to our relationship with God because He will have no rivals. And it becomes a question of priorities. Another cost that we pay when we pursue success at all costs is integrity. It's a great cost to pay. And the question then is, if we achieve success in the eyes of the world through these means, is it really success? Are the costs worth the result? And so today I want to have a look at you, what the Bible says about success. What is a biblical perspective on success? And to do that, I want to look at a person that, in my eyes, is the most successful person that ever walked this planet. But if you look at this person's life, if you look at his life and, and what he accomplished in his life, lifetime, you think, what? Most successful person that's ever lived? How is that possible? But I want to I look at him with you. And it's not, it's not Bill Gates. It's not Steve Jobs. Not even Steve Jobs. The person I want to look at with you is Jesus. You're saying, well, duh, we're in church, of course. But now, let's, let's have a look. Let's have a look at his life. 
All right? So Jesus was born to a young girl, a young woman, who wasn't married at the time that she conceived Jesus. Once she was, when, when he was born, she had Joseph, but he wasn't the father. There were really mysterious circumstances. He was born in a stable, literally in a feeding trough. There was nothing glamorous about that. Not a great start. Right after he was born, his family had to take him and run to Egypt. They were refugees. Jesus was a refugee during the first few years of his life because the situation in his home country was too dangerous for him. We don't really know of the circumstances that they grew up in in Egypt, but it can't have been comfortable. So then they moved back, and I, I can't help but think that Jesus must have been a little odd to his contemporaries. I mean, at 12 years old, he's kind of comes across maybe as a religious nerd a little bit. I mean, he's already arguing theology with the, with the, the teachers of the law and, and religion in the temple, and, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And, uh, and then he grows up. He grows up in a, probably a lower, lower middle-class household as a son of a carpenter, not much to go around. And he grows up to be a religious teacher. And so when he turns 30, he starts gathering some followers. And so by the time his life ends, he has 12 close followers. Actually, one deserted him, so there's 11. So at the end of his life and his ministry, he has 11 people that closely were closely devoted to him. And we read about maybe another 70 that, that were really devoted to him as, as followers. Not as close as the other 12 or 11. Okay, so you put that together, that's like 81 I have a thousand friends on Facebook, okay? I mean, this is weird. And then he is arrested, executed in the most cruel and humiliating way. And his disciples go into hiding. Is that the picture of success to you? Isn't that odd? And yet, at the end of his life, at the very end, he's on that cross, pinned to that wood... He says something very interesting. He says, it is finished. And he didn't mean like, okay, I'm done. This is, what he meant is, what I came to do, the mission I was given, has been accomplished. I've done what, I've, what I was supposed to do. It is finished. And yet you look at his life and you're like, what? What, is, what have you finished? And then you, you fast forward 2,000 years, and here's you and me, and we're in this building today, as are probably hundreds of millions all across this globe, are sitting in chairs and in pews just like you, because it is finished, because Jesus did what he did. Is that success? I'm telling you, no one, not one person has influenced the history of the world. Not one person has made the difference. Not one person has changed as many lives as Jesus has over the, these last 2,000 years. That is success. So let's have a look at his secret to success. What made Jesus so effective long after he's died? And I want to take you to a passage here in Matthew 16 where he lays out some of his mission and purpose to the disciples. But before we do that, I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thanks for the privilege and opportunity to be here together, 
to worship you together and to look at your word together. And I just pray, Father, that, uh, that this morning you would speak to our hearts through your word and through your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would take me out of the way and every other distraction and uh, that you would show us, Lord, what true success means. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles if you have them with you. If you don't, we have it up here on the screen. And I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. From this time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So here's Peter rebuking the Son of God. I don't know, doesn't sound like a great idea to me. But he says, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's harsh. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to to what he has done. So what are Jesus' secrets to success here? Think, first we, uh, we need to look here at verses 21 and 23, where he begins to explain his plan of getting arrested and killed. And it says he tells them to be raised three days later. I don't think Peter paid attention anymore <laughs> to that when he said, no, don't let this happen. But see, he's saying this in the context of the disciples still believing that Jesus is, yeah, he's a religious leader, but that he's also a political liberator, that he has come to liberate Israel from the occupation of the Roman Empire, and that he's going to set up an actual kingdom where he will reign, and his 12 disciples will get to be what? His sidekicks, and, and high up in that hierarchy, and reign with him. That's their expectation. That's their plan and purpose at this point. And that's their definition of success as far as Jesus' ministry is going. And so the first time Jesus is, is putting a little kink into that and said, well, guys, what you have in mind is not exactly what God has in mind. It's not exactly what I have in mind. He's basically telling them, in your eyes, I'm going to be defeated. In your eyes, I'm going to lose this. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured. And I'm going to be killed. To them, that meant the end of their dream of a a kingdom and reigning and success. And Peter won't have any of it. He rebukes Jesus and says, don't you talk about this. Stop this. No, we can't let this happen. And Jesus sets him straight quite sternly. And basically what he's telling him here is, he says, Peter, listen, you got your priorities wrong. Your expectation, your idea of what will make this successful is not my idea of what will make this successful. Your idea of success is not God's idea of success. Your idea of success has to do with your status and position in this life and in this time here. 
And he's letting on, said, Peter, I'm here for a much, much bigger purpose than for you to help reign in Israel. I've got bigger things to do. I've got a more important purpose for you and for me. And then he says, you, Peter, have in mind the things of men. I have in mind the things of God. And what he's saying here is, your idea, your earthly idea of success, your mind of a man, and God's idea of success, my mind, they're at odds at each other. They're at odds, and we've got to figure this out. He's saying the things of God often don't look successful in the context of this worldly culture and the, the culture, the society that Peter lived in and that we live in. What Jesus has and what Jesus has for you might not look successful to you. It might not look like success in the eyes of your family or friends or even of your church friends. What he might have might not be considered success by the people around us. See, one problem I think that we have with measuring success is that it really comes down to we measure success always compared to other people, don't we? Our success is always compared to somebody else. That's why, by the way, success is never successful enough because there's always somebody more successful. But it's the, the, the idea and measurement of success is really based on envy and jealousy because we want to have more or better than so-and-so. And I want to read to you a, a passage in Philippians where Paul talks about Jesus' idea of success and how he put that into practice. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This is what Paul says about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now this, if, if you really think about this, this is a paradigm that's, that's almost impossible for us to comprehend and understand. See, our success is always compared to so-and-so. Oh, I'm successful. Now here Jesus is compared and equaled with God. So he did not consider equality with God. Being equal to the almighty God was not something Jesus considered something he needed to hold on to. When when that's all we're consumed with, aren't we? And we're so consumed in our success with holding on to position. And then it says, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Again, that is totally upside down of what we consider success. Didn't your grandpa always tell you, make something of yourself? Make something of yourself. Well, Jesus made nothing of himself when he was everything. He made himself a servant. Elsewhere it says he didn't come to, serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. What's our uh, level and, and measure of success? How many people work for us and serve us, right? It's completely upside down. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. God's measure of success is his level, Jesus' level of obedience. And we measure success by how many people Report to us and are obedient to us. So completely upside down. So the question is, what made Jesus do that? 
What made him do that? What motivated him and what made it possible for him to do that? You know what it was? It was love. It was love and the right understanding of love. First of all, it was Jesus' love for you and for me and recognizing that we needed him to do that. That we needed him to become man and live a perfect life. That we needed him in that perfect, in that perfection to go on that cross and pay the penalty that God demanded for your shortcomings and my shortcomings. It took him to do that so that you and I can have forgiveness in him and in that forgiveness be reconciled to the Father because that is your and my purpose. That's your and my creation design is to be in an intimate relationship with God our creator. And out of love, Jesus made that possible again. The other thing that made this possible for Jesus is that he knew the love the Father had for him. That he had a proper understanding of who he was. That he was valued by the Father just as he was. That it didn't depend on any position or status. You see, if we really, really understood the level of love that God has for you and me, there's nothing we wouldn't do for him. There's nothing we wouldn't do out of obedience to him if we really understood his love is perfect for me. See, if my children really understand my love, then they know whatever I ask of them is at their best interest. Now, my love isn't as pure as God's. But you see, if we were really to understand God's love, we would do anything for him. And Jesus did. Because he really understood the Father's love for him. If we go back to our passage in Philippians, after rebuke, rebuking uh, Peter and, and telling him about, you know, you have the things of man in mind, not the things of God. Then he continues to explain what that means. Let me read those verses again, 24 to 26. It says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? See, what's the big difference between the mind of man and the mind of God? I think the big difference that he is, is alluding to here is that our mind is so finite and it's so wrapped up in the here and now, isn't it? Our minds are so wrapped up in the here and now. That's why success here and now is so important. God's mind is wrapped up in, in what comes beyond. It's so wrapped up in, in everything beyond this life. And it's, it's somehow getting those together that will give us the right perspective on our life here. If we read these verses 24 through 26, it's, it says, The mind of God is on us denying ourselves. What is our mind on? Our mind is on promoting ourselves, isn't it? God's mind says, follow me. The mind of man says, no, you guys follow me. I want to lead. We don't want to submit, do we? The mind of God is on lose your life. The mind of man is improve your life. God's mind is on watch out for your soul. Watch out for what's eternal. Our mind is gain the whole earth. 
Our mind is on the here and now. Our mind is on finding security and, and peace and safety here. When God wants us to find security, peace and safety for our soul. Not for our retirement. In verse 27, he talks about rewards that we will get. Rewards that will be eternal when our, our concern is so much with the rewards here and now. See, and I think, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with man's desire to succeed. The problem is when our desire to succeed is separate and exclusive from God's mind. And from his focus on eternity for us. Problem is that our worldly success and its rewards become so important that we lose sight of God's perspective. And his perspective is, what good is it going to be for you if you gain this whole earth, if you gain everything you want to gain? And we had some of those, you know, wanting everything that I've ever wanted. That's, that's great. But what if in the pursuit of gaining everything you've ever wanted, what really matters, your soul falls by the wayside. That is God's concern. It's his concern so much that his plan for humanity centers around fixing that problem. His whole plan for humanity and for, for, for history is that we come to the understanding that our soul is what matters and fixing our soul is the center of his plan. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he sent Jesus, so that he can fix that central problem that we have of being separated from God, of being separated from his mind, doing what's good in our eyes. That's the problem. That's why he sent Jesus, so that we can enter back into that relationship with him, where we can get insight into his mind and his plan and his purpose for you and for me. See, that is success. Living and fulfilling your purpose and your purpose by creation design is to be in an intimate relationship with God. And that happens through Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross and in the fact that he rose again and is alive and wants to give you his life today. Success in God's eyes is you realizing just how much he loves you and the extent to which he went to show you that love and then accepting that love into your life. And then living out of the overflow of receiving God's love. See, God loves you so much that he has planned for you from the, from the beginning of creation. I want to read two verses to you that uh, communicate that very clearly. One is Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. It says this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not... Nope, that's wrong. Uh, 16, 26, that was 29. From one man, it says, he made every nation of men so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined, check this out. He determined the times set for them and the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Let me go to the next verse before I, I go into this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. 
talks about something very similar. He says, for we are God's workmanship. We are created by him, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So these verses tell me a couple of things. One thing, God loves you. He has a plan for you. And he's always had a plan for you. It says here, from the beginning, he decided where you would live. The time and place where you should live. Where you are right now, including here this morning, is not an accident. God loved you so much that he orchestrated all that. Why? So that you would be in a position to reach out to him and help others reach out to him. And then in Ephesians, read that he's, he's planned things for you to do in advance. He has a plan for you. He has a mission planned for you individually. That's his purpose for you. But you can only find that if you are in a relationship with him where you can receive that from him. And where he, through the Holy Spirit, will give you the strength to do it. See, success in God's eyes has nothing to do with what you have. It has all to do with what do you do out of love and obedience to him with what he has given you. Success has nothing to do with the kind of neighborhood you live in. Whether you live up in a gated facility above the capital or in a trailer park in, in Midvale. It doesn't matter. What matters is what do you do in that neighborhood and with that neighborhood out of love and obedience to God. Your level of success has nothing to do with the job you have. It has everything to do with accepting where God has put you. And what are you doing in, that, in those circumstances? What are you doing at your workplace with your co-workers out of love and obedience to God? Because he has placed you exactly where he has placed you. So that you and others can reach out to him and find him. Your level of success has nothing to do with your income. It has all to do with what do you do with the finances that God has given you out of love and obedience to him. True success as defined by God who has created us comes when we come to the point, as Jesus says here, where we are willing to give up. Where we are willing to give up our life Give up our talents. Give up our resources and say, God, what's your plan with what you've given me? What's your plan with who you made me to be? What's your plan with my gifts and my talents? What's your plan with my passions? What's your plan with my home and with my resources? That is success because it will lead you to living out your purpose. A few months ago, I gave a message on Solomon. Anybody remembers that? No, no show of hands. <laughs> um, I talked about Solomon and his pursuit of wisdom and success and pleasures. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to quote again what he said in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament where Solomon kind of processes his life. And he was considered the most wise, the richest, most glamorous king in Jewish history. And this is what he said after contemplating of, over his life and his pursuit of success, especially in this instance. It's in Ecclesiastes 4.13. It's not on the screen. Just listen to this. He said, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. What he's saying is, 
it was better for me to be young and wise than old and foolish because I've stopped listening to God. That's what he's saying, who no longer knows how to take warning. Then he says, the youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before him, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, is too, this too is meaningless in a chasing after the wind. When he talks about the youth and the successor, he's talking about himself and his rise to prominence and the people that followed him and, and the power and authority and success that he had. But it so sidetracked him from his pursuit of his relationship with God that at the end of his life, he says, it would have been better for me to stay young and wise and listen to God than to become so full of the success that I forgot about my purpose that God had given me. And in the end, he says, it was all meaningless. A chasing after the wind. He says, all the energy and creativity that I put into pursuing success was so misplaced. Can you imagine if you would put the same kind of intensity and passion and creativity that we put in our education and in, in careers and in wanting to be successful, if we were to challenge that or to channel that and put that into our pursuit of God and His purpose for us, can you imagine if I had challenged my, my manipulative energy on the soccer field and my creativity in, in, in cheating in school and all that energy and thought. Man, if I would have challenged, put, challenged, channeled that at a young age into pursuing God, I can only imagine what I would have been with Him. If we as individuals in this church put our energy and passion into pursuing God, I, I can only begin to imagine what your life would look like, what this church would look like, what this valley and this state would look like. That is God's measure of success. The level of our obedience and submission to Him. I want to invite you to um, have a look at a video here. It's a video, a story of a man's pursuit of success and where it led him. Why don't you watch this with me, please? I wanted to be like my father. I wanted to have a nice car like he had. A private jet to, to fly on when we went on vacation. I wanted to be able to bless people like he did. I wanted to be respected like he was. I saw my father occasionally. He was busy building waste management at the time. His life was uh, filled with hard work, with travel, with interesting people. He had a certain amount of power. It was a life that, that seemed exciting to me. I made an incredible amount of money working with Wayne Senior there. 
I began to have wealth to fly, to have a nice sport fishing yacht, to live in a big home, to have an incredible amount of disposable income. We owned three sports teams. We drank and drank in excess. We went to the kind of clubs that you didn't tell your mother that you went to. I commanded an audience. I said whatever came to my mind, whether it was to you or to your wife, self-focused. Do what I want and uh, please me, no matter what that means. That was my life. An incredible banquet of all the things that the world had to offer, but just never getting full, never being satisfied, never being able to push away and say, okay, that's enough. Suddenly I was lost. Happy, but unfulfilled. Something was missing. I got a call from a couple friends and they said, hey, Junior, we got a chance to go on a nuclear submarine for three days and cruise from South Carolina to Florida. Do you want to go? I said, done, we're there, we'll take our plane. And I was introduced to Captain Brad Fleetwood McDonald. We became incredible friends. He took me on his submarine, so I started taking him out of my fishing boat and I began to ask him questions about leadership. I thought, who better? and a man that commands 120 gentlemen underneath the ocean for six months at a time. And every time I asked him about leadership, he had his Bible. And he had this incredible peace about him that was unlike any that I'd ever seen in all the people that I had met through Wayne Sr. And one day I got up my courage and I asked him, I said, you know, Captain Brad, why are we so different? Junior, he said, you have a hole in your heart. It's consuming everything that you're trying to put in. Everything you do is trying to fill that hole. And the only way you're going to fill that hole is with the relationship with God. I thought, could that be it? Could it be that easy? All these things that I've been chasing, all these places that I'm going, a relationship with God. Well, I went home and I tried to find a church. The pastor gave an incredible sermon, and at the end, before he closed, said, Do you think that there's a reason that God allowed you to be born? Do you think that He has a plan for your life? I felt like He was talking right at me instead of the 4,000 people that were there. I stood up out of my chair like I was launched out by springs and I can still hear this voice inside of me that said, Junior, sit down, you look so silly. But there was no way. I made my way to the, down the road to the aisle and forward to the front of this church that I'd never been to before and I fell to my knees. And I began to cry. I cried and I listened to that pastor and he said, repeat the simple words and ask Jesus in your heart. And I did. I told Jesus that I was sorry, that I loved him, and that I wanted to know what this plan for my life was. I wanted to be in this personal relationship with him if he wanted to be in it with me. It's power, not Junior's power. God's power, the Holy Spirit's power, the power to change, 
I went home and I tried to explain to my wife what happened. She looked at me and she said, I don't know what happened, but I'm worried. She told me at one point that I'd been abducted by aliens. I didn't know what to tell her. All I knew is that I was indeed a different person. Success for me is that one day when I die and I see Jesus, that he'll look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful son. I've been given such a gift based on the life that I lived, a second chance, a chance to follow Jesus, to go to heaven, to live an eternal life. And I know for certainty that I'm going to live in heaven. My father is the kind of individual that keeps his feelings very close, but I wasn't sure that he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I got up the courage finally to lean over to my father and to ask him, Hey, Dad, have you ever prayed a prayer like that and asked Jesus into your heart? Yeah, I have. Success is knowing that those that you love will make heaven. That's true success. I'm Wayne Heising Jr., and I am second. Uh, he, uh, he says I am second because so long in his life he was in first place, but he surrendered that place to Jesus in his life and made him first. And You know, he talked about his pastor there, giving a great sermon. I don't know that I did, but I want to ask you the same questions that this pastor asked him. He says, do you think there's a reason why God allowed you to be born? Do you think God might just have a plan for your life? I just, I want to invite you this one. I actually want to ask you to stand if you would. I don't know if you could identify with Wayne Jr.'s journey. Maybe you're at that point where that hole in your life is swallowing up everything you throw at it, trying to fill it up. So I just want to invite you to do what, what Wayne Jr. did and, and uh, take that step today and acknowledge that you are separated from God, that you are separated from His purpose for you. And I can just tell you and agree with with Wayne here, he will change your life. It, it, it doesn't surprise me his wife thought he'd been abducted by an alien because he was a new man. And you can be a new man and a new woman through Jesus coming into your life and changing things, giving you a purpose and a meaning and a mission to be on. So I just want to invite you. So we're going into worship here and singing songs together as a response to God this morning. I want to give you the opportunity that Wayne had. There's something about getting out of your seat and coming up here and surrendering your life. And We don't do this often, but we want to give you that opportunity here today. And I just want to invite you, if you want to do that today, if you want to ask Jesus into your life and surrender your life to Him, 
why don't you come up here? I have a few people come up here that are willing to pray with you. Why don't you come and join us and let's, uh, let's take that step together. Let's worship him.